0: The behavioral and neural sciences are a nerdy interest of mine, but I didn't dedicate any episode to that topic yet. But sometimes, you know, life brings you gifts, especially around Christmas, I noticed. Yeah, that's my statistical side. And here, That gift is a book, Bayesian Data Analysis for the Behavioral and Neural Sciences, by Todd Hudson. Todd is a part of the faculty at New York University Crossman School of Medicine and also the New York University Tendon School of Engineering. He is a computational neuroscientist working in several areas, including early detection and grading of neurological diseases, computational models of movement planning and learning, and development of new computational and experimental techniques. He also co-founded Tactile Navigation Tools, which develops navigation aids for the visually impaired, and Third Eye Technologies, which develops low-cost laboratory and clinical-grade eye-tracking technologies. As you will hear, Todd wanted his book to bypass the need for advanced mathematics, normally considered a prerequisite for this type of material. And basically, he wants students to be able to write code and models and understand equations, even if they are not specialized in writing those equations. We'll also touch on some of the neuroscience examples he's got in the book, as well as the two general algorithms he uses for model measurement and model selection. Oh, I almost forgot the most important. Todd loves beekeeping and gardening. He's got 25 apple trees, 4 cherry trees, nectarines, figs, strawberries, etc. is Learning Bayesian Statistics in the Garden, episode 53, recorded December 8, 2021. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andora, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting LearnBaseStats.com. That's learnbaystats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash LearnBaseStats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash LearnBaseStats. Thanks a lot folks, I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability Cause every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow Mostly I'm watching eyes widen Maybe cause my likeness lowers Expectations of tight rhyming How would I know Unless I'm rhyming In front of a bunch of blind men Dropping placebo-controlled science Like I'm Richard Feynman Hello, my dear Bayesian folks! In this Christmas period, I have two things to share with you. First, something I never get tired of. A big thank you to my new supporters on Patreon, especially those in the full posterior tier or higher. Daniel Linrott, if you are listening... Thanks a lot for your support, it makes a big difference. Second, for the past few months, I've been developing an online course with my friends and fellow PyMC car developers Thomas Vicky and Ravim Kumar. We made this intuitive introduction to Bayesian stats for the quick learners, the action takers and the busy professionals who have always wanted a one-stop shop to learn about the modern Bayes revolution. You will get a lot of code examples, a lot of practical applications, not a lot of math equations, rest assured, and you will integrate a community of like-minded learners online, because we are all in this together, right? We were overwhelmed with interest for the beta release, so enrollment for this is already closed, but the public release is scheduled for Q1 2022, so, go to intuitivebase.com if you want to get the latest updates and check out the syllabus. The link will be in the show notes. Okay, now let's talk neural sciences with Todd Hudson. Todd Hudson, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for taking the time. Really happy to have you on the show because I didn't do any any show specifically yet on that topic that we're going to talk about today. So that's perfect. And I enjoyed going through your book, so it's going to be double the fun for me and I hope for listeners. And before we start, actually, I want to say that listeners of the show can get a 30% discount on your book, actually. So you just go to Cambridge University Press website, you enter the code Bda Bns twenty two at the checkout, and you're good. You get the book, and you enjoy. So, of Great. course, the the code will be the discount code will be in the in the show notes, and you can use that until January thirty first, twenty twenty two. So, I hope you'll make good use of that. And before talking about your book, I want to talk about you and your background, as usual on that podcast. So, basically, what's your origin story? tell? And how did you come into the intersection of stats and neural sciences? Yeah, so well, first, thank you for uh,
1: for inviting me forward to uh, chatting a bit. So my background at the intersection came fairly early on in my graduate career. I was I was interested in some problems that involved relatively complex data set, and when I started to analyze it, I just did it the way I intuitively, you know, felt it ought to be analyzed, and then that looked good, but then I wanted to relate it to, you know, sort of standard analyses. And I realized that I developed something that was a sort of a takeoff on the partial correlation statistic. And that got me interested in looking at, at statistics and analysis in general, although I was doing a PhD in computational neuroscience. So I was doing some some modeling, but that, that's what sort of set me off on being interested in statistics as well.
0: Hmm. Okay. And so you say that it's really early on in your career uh, that you got into those two, two, two branches, and so what, what drew you to that? You know, what drew you to the neurosciences and, and the behavioral sciences then? I liked that it felt like a
1: new frontier. It feels very different than physics and to a large extent biology and chemistry because there was not nearly as much known about it at the time and so it just felt wide open and hmm. you know, complex mathematics really hadn't been applied in a lot of domains. And so when I chose a a lab to do my PhD in, I was working with with a professor, Leonard Mayton who who was doing modeling involving space perception. It was a vision lab and it had to do with the way you process spatial information around you to orient yourself. In space, and and that has a, a lot of very interesting applications. And I did that so I was just drawn in by an interest in navigation and spatial orientation and and that mm. that kind of work and being able to to apply modeling techniques to that. I just thought was going to be a lot of fun. And I was right.
0: Oh yeah, okay, that's interesting bees like you're you're mentioning also the the mathematical aspect and mm. the fact of doing math, which is interesting because we'll get back to that. these in your book you're actually trying to help people who don't have that background <laughs> to to be able right. to still do modeling so i'm in tr- interested in that that irony yeah. yeah it's the you enjoyed the mathematical part right but yes. i guess yeah. you maybe at one point in your career so that it can be a hurdle for some people to not have that mathematical background and they get maybe discouraged or intimidated whereas they still could do modeling Is that something you saw in your students and other Uh, colleagues? What got me
1: interested in writing a book this way, and really for writing a book at all, was to do it this way. Because I realized that incoming graduate students I was helping to train as a postdoc came in and... If they had a math background, they still had no background in probability and they couldn't do the probabilistic modeling that uh, we were doing in the lab. So we had to be trained to do that. And just in general, it was very clear that the reason that this material wasn't being taught in, you know, very widely to undergraduates was because of the, the math requirements that would typically uh, be involved. And so I wanted to find a way around that to make this material known and accessible to, to undergraduates on a, on a much larger scale than it had been. And, and in part, of that was selfish because <laughs> I, I also realized that many of my colleagues didn't have you know, any sort of contact with this material Either, and so when you know when we go to publish research, and if you analyze data in this way, then the peer review process requires that you know the material is sent out to other scientists, and then they look it over. And if they don't have any any contact with this material previously, then they're sort of at a loss as to how to review it, and then that becomes problematic. And so i wanted it uh, and 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 you know that of course you know working professors are relatively busy with (laughs) their own research and teaching and so on and so they don't have a lot of time to uh, learn a new mathematical discipline and so you really have to catch them younger (laughs) than that if you if you want it to be widely known
0: (laughs) i see and then i'm curious how you would define what you're doing nowadays I'm doing
1: a lot of more clinically oriented work and we medical school so my my home department is in rehab uh, rehab medicine okay and and then also, I have appointments in neurology and biomedical engineering. So, a lot of my work involves early detection techniques for various neurologically based difficulties. So, people who've had a, a, a concussion, you want to be able to detect that, even if it's mild. And we've looked at different techniques for doing that, particularly on the sidelines. And American football is mm. is the is the highest rate of concussion, certainly in sport here in the U.S. And then and then other you know, there are a range of neurological disorders that that have oculomotor deficits associated with them. And so I do a lot of work looking at the details of eye movements, eye movement planning, execution problems that that go along with with those issues and then both early detection grading of the progression of a disease is also important in certain cases for how you treat and so so I've been doing a, a lot of, of work in that in that sort of realm and then I also have I also do a good bit of work with assistive technology developing assistive technology for the visually impaired in particular mm-hmm. and so that that actually harkens back to my graduate school days with a spatial and space perception and,
0: and navigation and so that's that's been very nice to to do also that does sound fascinating and we're definitely gonna dive into those some of those topics later in in our conversation but to continue on that introductory path then how do do, how do Bayesian stats fit into all these? So when you're talking
1: about detection, for example, Bayesian stats are are much more sensitive for detecting most things, I would say. So, for example, I've been looking at an issue that then involves detecting a particular type of eye movement. The details probably aren't uh, all that interesting, but, you know, it has certain characteristics and... The way one would normally look for something like that is to, you know, in the in an eye movement trace, you'd create a program that you know looked for those types of characteristics, and then you know give a rating of you know how closely it matches, and you know so it would be sort of like a, a likelihood, how how likely does it, is it that the data you know might have come from uh, this particular thing, and. That's useful. That's certainly, you know, going to give you information, but it's not as good as making the comparison that you would in in a Bayesian model comparison, where you have to say, okay, is it coming from this eye movement that has these characteristics or is it coming from you know a general other type of eye movement that would have slightly different characteristics and then and then that comparison that likelihood ratio is much more sensitive and can pull out can both pull out a smaller signal and also get rid of false positives that you might get because of similarities in the so so I find that there's a lot of work to be done in the sense of introducing these techniques and putting them to use in ways that people wouldn't wouldn't have otherwise
0: done to, to improve wow. well certainly detection in this case, but, but also a range of other. And you personally, do you, do you remember when you first got introduced to Bayesian stats? And, I, and also why you, you found them interesting? I do. I,
1: I was surfing online for interesting analysis techniques, huh. as, as one does, and I came across some of the work of, of the late physicist James, and I started reading his work, and that would have been right around the time that his book came out, and so when it did, I, I ordered that and read it through. It was great because he really emphasized the logic, which I love. I think that I think that's one of the the key advantages of Bayesian statistics is is that the logic is very clear. And it also sensitized me to the fact that this was written for physicists. And you know, so, you know, a lot of the a lot of the jargon. I mean, I was familiar with it. I had studied physics as an undergraduate. But but, you know, there was a lot of jargon. There was a lot of mathematics and Certainly the, the content in terms of the examples, there was, it was a lot of physics, right? And so, which made sense because these were the people obviously that he knew, and they're the people that, that had the background to understand that material, and especially the, you know, the way it was presented. And, but it made, but it made me realize that, uh, you know, I couldn't hand that book to, you know certainly undergraduates in in any of the departments that I was working in, and really even, you know, most, you know, a lot of colleagues, they, you know, it just wasn't their background. And so having something that was specific to behavioral scientists, neuroscientists, you know, and with examples that spoke to them certainly more, that they were interested in, in behaviors and how you could analyze them and model them, I realized that the but that was something that obviously, to this was very very new to me at the time. I mean, it was it wasn't very very new in the sense that it, it has been around, but it wasn't it wasn't something I had ever run across as an undergraduate myself. All throughout graduate school, no, it wasn't until just
0: after I I finished and was doing a uh, postdoc. So you two are an E.T. Chains fan and was converted to to patient <laughs> sets through that uh, through that funnel. No, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I I understand why. And and actually then these you're talking about the, the people in your field and so on. How how Bayesian is your field actually? So
1: there is a contingent, certainly. So it depends on when you say my field, what what you're mm-hmm. referring to. So within computational neuroscience, there's a large Bayesian contingent. But in a medical school, in a clinical setting, in you know in a typical if it's not a computational department, then typically not as much. And so, you know, I like to think that it's, it's, you know, it's becoming more, more common and there's a lot more interest uh, now. And so it's really an, an issue of getting people to work through the examples and understand why it's so useful and so much more straightforward and, you know, just. Uh, it both makes sense and it does what you want it to do, and so that's been a big, <laughs> a big <laughs> focus,
0: obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I see. <laughs> and so let's let's dive a bit more into your book now: patient data analysis for the behavioral and neural sciences. So, it talked a bit why you wanted to write this book, but maybe reinforce that and. Can you tell us who it is written for? So
1: it's written for, for undergraduates, certainly. I wrote it so that if someone had the math background to do all the equations and be completely fine, they would not have an issue with, with the way it's written. But if you don't, if your, if your math background is more or less algebra, you should still be able to go through it. And instead, and instead of solving the, you know, the calculus-based equations, I want a student to be able to read them, right, so that they know what the equation is asking uh, to be done. And then they perform it through the code that, uh, that I provide both in the book and also on the website so that, you know, no one, no one needs to, to actually type in all of the code that's in the book. It's all right
0: on the website. You can just copy and paste it. Otherwise, that would be... Incredibly tedious okay so this is rather large for a large audience right but mainly for people interested in neurosciences and behavioral sciences right and that is still
1: quite a large audience any you know any psychology department those are the those are obviously the biggest departments in many on many campuses and uh, you know if they have a they have a statistics requirement if they have you know that sort of department then this would be appropriate there either as a you know either as a replacement for statistics or as a second course after a statistics course and it's also you know because as i said it's not widely taught right now to undergraduates and so any you know any graduate department neuroscience or, or psychology or as i found in the medical school there are master's programs for people who've had an md and they want to they want to run a lab and the medical doctor you know the training is clinical and so to get the background for experimental design and analyzing data they have to take courses like this to get a master's degree in and so it would be appropriate there also certainly there are data science departments and you know behavioral Mm -hmm. examples obviously could (laughs) are i think at any rate more accessible to you know someone who doesn't have a science background at all and they want Mm -hmm. to do a data science degree i see so so yeah i think that there i think that there's
0: definitely a a wide audience to be uh, spoken Mm -hmm. to. Yeah, so in in the book, you take examples that will talk particularly to students in the behavioral and neural sciences, and you do that mainly to demonstrate the usefulness of patient stats. And so here, I'm wondering if you can take one of such examples that you particularly like, uh, so that users get an idea I and mean, you talked already a bit like you mentioned the concussion in football or other examples but yeah feel free to, to pick one of your favorites all right so that's a little bit like asking which of my children is my favorite but
1: but so one of the examples that i enjoy in part because it relates to the progression that i guess i i had when i was when i was writing i you know, was trying to decide. You know, what to put into the book. What, just how how far I should go in terms of the the type of problem that I address, the type of data that that I address. And one of the things that I looked at and decided not to put in was cyclical data. Right. And there's wonderful, but wonderfully complex, you know, analysis of of cyclical data. And. I thought for quite a while about what type of example that I could use for that if I were to put it in the book. Although I didn't, I didn't come up with an existing example, I realized that you could use the idea of cyclical data for a new research paradigm that involved sensory motor adaptation. So I don't know if you're familiar with with adaptation. It's the sort of thing that that happens if you put a prism in front of the eye, and when you put a prism in front of one eye, and close the other one, obviously, and everything looks shifted to the side. If you Mm. try to throw a ball to someone looking through the prism, you'll throw it to the wrong place because everything looks off to the side from where it actually is. And then you adjust a bit after each throw if you keep throwing the ball to that person and then... You make that adjustment, that's adaptation. And the adjustment happens sort of gradually in a characteristic way. And one of the, and one of the oddities of, of adaptation research is that you get that huge first error that I described, where you throw the ball to the person and it completely misses them because you see them way off to the side relative to where they are. That's a large error. So you see that error, you notice it. Consciously, So it's not just that your motor system is correcting an error that, that it noticed, but you didn't necessarily. And so because you're noticing it, you're consciously correcting it on top of the adaptation process that's obviously very gradual. And so I realized that you could use that as a way to, to look at adaptation without people realizing that they were making an error because you could take a very low amplitude sine wave, make the errors follow that sine wave, right? So the very first throw of that ball, you would introduce no error, right? So now you can't use a prism, you have to do it electronically, but at any rate, you introduce no error, then you introduce a little error, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and you only bring it up to a very small level, and then it goes back down, and then negative, and then so on. And because it's following a sine wave, you can detect it in the data very easily relative Mm. to if it's just a single error, right? So the reason that you use that big error in sensory motor research when you're looking at adaptation is because you want to be able to detect it. So you need a big error to detect it. If it's just a tiny, tiny error and there's only one, then you make a little tiny error and then it goes back to zero and you can't detect that. And so with the sine wave, you could. And so I developed this sine wave adaptation paradigm because I was thinking about how to analyze data. And so I thought that was that was a nice a nice sort of side benefit of having, you know, thought about these things and was writing at the time. So I have an example in the book of sensory motor adaptation the usual way because I didn't I didn't want to go through the math of cyclical data and introductory uh, text but but it was it was fun to put uh, that one in here also to show how to analyze that one of the nice things about about putting it in here is that you can see what provides you with good information about The um, adaptation, so now it's uh, an exponential decay, right? Because you've introduced an error and then you slowly correct it. So exponentially it goes back to zero. Error starts when you introduce the prism, then it drops off back to zero as you correct. And it's relatively gradual and, and it looks exponential. And you can see what parts of that function you can detect easily in the data and what parts you can't. So if you don't quite correct all the way to zero and there's an offset, then you can detect that in the data. But, you know, it takes a certain amount of data and you can detect it, you know, with a certain level of precision that you can see in the probability distributions in the posterior when you're done. And the same with the, you know, with the time constant of the decay. If you, you know, if if you're trying to measure that, then you can do that with a certain level of precision that obviously see in the, in the width of the, of the poster when you're done. And if you change the size of the initial error or you change the length of the data collection, then you can see how those things affect the precision of the measurement that you end up making at the end. And so that's, that's a very useful exercise for someone who wants to design an experiment and they want to know how well
0: they'll be able to make these measurements uh, with the data when they're done. Okay, yeah, I see. That's super interesting. And so you, you've you got that that full example uh, in the book, right, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: You know, that's one of the things about the book that, that I thought about and went back and forth about with myself was how many examples to put in. So I ended up with a little over 100 examples that I worked completely through in the book. And that's more than you would need for a course, certainly, but I wanted there to be um, some ability for instructors to pick and choose what they thought were the interesting examples, you know, what the students, you know, found interesting as they were lecturing. And so there are more than you, than you truly need in, in there for, you know, for a course and also for self-study. So I was emailed recently by a colleague who was asking about the book and noted that it's, you know, a relatively large book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and like I said, you know, most working professors don't have a lot of, of spare time. And so, you know, she wanted to know if that this is a very large book and she wanted self, you know, to do a self-study and, you know, what to do about that. And, the truth is you don't have to do all of the examples, right? So it can be much, much shorter to go through the book if you, you know, if you do the the most basic example in each sort of category and, you know, you don't have to go through all the detail of all of the examples. And so you can get through it much more easily that way if you wanted to do a self-study and you weren't uh, taking a course. I see. Yeah, yeah. That was the best advice that I got from another colleague, when i was going through the editing process with cambridge and he he'd looked it over for me just as i was starting that process and he and he said look you know it's just too long so <laughs> no one is going to get through this and he was right it was twice as long as it is now at that point point. and so i cut it i cut it almost in half and and i'm happy that i did otherwise it would have been if you know would have
0: uh, felt a little bit uh, much I <laughs> can see. How did you manage to cut it in half then? It's yeah. super hard to cut to content, right? It is, yeah. Uh, it, was, it, it hurt I a little it bit. I guess it was a heartbreak.
1: It was. It was a little bit uh, painful. But uh, I still have all of those examples on my computer so I can use them when I'm teaching. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't hurt that much in, in that respect. And, you know... Uh, like I said, he was right. It just, it would have been too much if, if I hadn't cut them. Hmm. So, yeah, I see. Uh, I see. And it, w- you know, it was mostly examples. I think there were a couple of, there were, there were very few, but there were a couple of topics that I removed. But in general, what I removed was
0: examples. And that's that's what cut it down. I see. So thanks for that uh, that deep, di- deep dive into that example. And I hope Miss Nose will be interested in that and, and want to read more. What I remember is that you also dedicate a whole chapter to of criticism and model selection, and you you talk mostly about two general algorithms to do that. So, can you talk a bit about those and explain, especially explain why they help in that regard in, in the goal of model selection?
1: So, actually, the two algorithms: one is for model selection, and one is for measurement. They're very similar, but the, the measurement algorithm is is discussed in chapter. Uh, and it's it's to it's to organize your thoughts as you go through a measurement problem right so a measurement problem is like the adaptation problem that i just described it's measuring you know the parameters of the exponential decay the you know the offset or the or the time constant or both and it's in particular it's designed to keep you on track so that you so that you don't get lost during the process and that you're forced to at least attempt to create a uh, graphical model of the um, of the system right so one of the things that i found was that in my own work when i sit down to do a new analysis i i'm very tempted to think, well, I can just write down the equations <laughs> and then I'll write the code and I'll be done. It turns out that that's never a good idea, in my opinion, because it's very easy to, to solve the wrong problem. It's very easy to write down equations that, that look good and that seem right, and you write the code and you run the data through it. And then once you do that, you realize that what you're getting doesn't quite make sense relative to what you wanted. And if you create a, a graphical model based on the posterior that you want, so that's where the algorithm starts with the desired posterior, what you want to measure, and then you work from there to a graphical model that... Creates that, and then you think about what what priors uh, you might assign to the model parameters, and so on. And then you create the full set of equations. If you don't do that, if you don't go through all of those steps, it's just very easy to get to get lost to simplify something that you maybe shouldn't have. And it, it, so it's really important, I think, to just go through all of the steps. It doesn't take that long to really just to just write it out and at least think about what each one. Uh, means and what what it can give you so you want to you know define the observation and the noise models and how they're related and and then you know like I said assign the priors and then finally you make the computation for the desired measurement that would be the measurement algorithm and the model selection algorithm is very similar but again it's it's for model selection so it's at least twice as complicated in the sense that you're going to be comparing at least two models and so then you have to, you know, so everything that happened in the measurement algorithm basically happens in step one in the model comparison algorithm. And then you you, know, you translate the hypotheses into equations. And then you have to assign priors over the hypotheses after you've already created the two models that you're comparing. And then you can compute the model likelihoods, and then make the the final computation. And so, so I felt it was important to have those guideposts for students, in particular, but frankly for myself. If I don't do it that way, it's just it, it can easily go wrong. There's just a mm-hmm. lot in there to do, and you know if you don't if you don't think it all through carefully, then
0: it's easy. It's easy to get get lost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, I see. I see. And, and what um, I didn't want to do was to,
1: yeah. to give a set of equations that people mm-hmm. were to memorize and then yeah. follow. So for example, you know, here's a, you know, here's a linear model, and here are the equations for it, and you memorize those, and this is how you do linear models. That's okay for the one linear model that you <laughs> that you derived that for, but it's really there are so many variations that. That I did not want to go down that road. And I and I would much rather have taught a student to think the problem through than to have memorized the 20 equations that I gave them for, you know, the, the most basic analyses that they'll ever do. Hmm. So that was my goal in highlighting those two algorithms was that this is how you go about solving a measurement problem. And this is how you go about solving a model selection or a model comparison problem, and not this is these are the equations that you use for a linear model for a model comparison of this type. That's just a bunch of memorization. People will never understand what they're doing and why if you go about it that way. So,
0: so I tried to go uh, the other route. Yeah, yeah. And what's your experience with? So, can you can you remind us the name of the algorithm for listeners? That you try, that you chose to use. So I developed them. The first one I call the uh, measurement
1: algorithm. So that's when you have a single model, you know what the model is, and you want to measure the parameters of that model. And then the model comparison algorithm or model selection algorithm. That's what you use when you have when you're comparing hypotheses, when you're comparing models, and you have a set of of models that you think might explain the phenomenon and then you have data and then you run that data through all of the models and use that to compute model likelihoods and then compare the the model
0: likelihoods. And any reason why you didn't use the like the existing model comparison algorithms like that's not derived
1: directly from Bayes theorem. So that's a technique to try to understand the effects of the model on on the data but it's not so the model comparison algorithm that i describe is it's directly the only deviation from computing a posterior is that i look at the likelihood ratios at the end the odds ratios at the end rather than the posterior probabilities but beyond that it's directly derived from bayes theorem and so so that's what i wanted to give students simply because it's just the most direct. And then once you understand the most basic form of model comparison, which I believe this is in the sense that it's just base there. And then once you understand that and you can use that, then you understand the deviations from it
0: in a way that you wouldn't if you had just started with, with that. With Lou or with WAIC? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And so m- more generally, what are the main skills that you try to instill in readers through your book?
1: Right. So, so I've touched on a few of them. So I I want a reader to be able to look at the equations in you know in the book and you know just generally when they're when they're reading research and uh, know what they what they're asking mm-hmm. what they, what the yeah. equations are meant to do mm. and whether or not they can solve them it's irrelevant as i point out in the book aside from gaussian integrals, there aren't uh, closed form solutions for most integrals yeah. anyway and so you're going to end up using some kind of approximation technique to mm. get the answer so they might as well and i just use i just use the very most basic technique so I don't bog them down in even more technical detail, but to be able to say, okay, here's an integral. I don't need to know how to solve it. You know, with a pencil, I can just I can just run it through the the code. But I know what the code is telling it to do, and I know that that integral is really just a sum across those probabilities. And so it takes a two D distribution and brings it down to one dimension. For example. And, and then you know, once they understand that, that geometry of, of what it's doing, then it's not nearly as frightening for them to then go through the book. And so if they don't have that background and they, you know, they can go through Appendix C, which covers that material in a good bit of depth, I almost made that one of the chapters, but then decided I'll put it in the Appendix instead. But, but that material is there so that, so that students can go through that. And you know, I just want them to be comfortable doing that so that they can go through anything that's here and for their own analyses so they understand what that's what that's about and then and then there are three other things there's in the first chapter actually there's a there's a figure figure 1.3 that talks about the scientific process and when you design an experiment and what you do from there to the point of getting data and analyzing it and interpreting it. There's an important stage that most texts don't talk about, and that's the simulation stage. And it's very first and it should be very first before you get your data that you simulate what you expect to see in that experiment and create the models for your either model comparison if that's what you're going to be doing that's typically what people will want to do in the end you have to create those models in enough detail if you can compare them on fake data right and so you have to simulate that data you have to simulate what the experiment will provide for you and then look at how that analysis would run and for example what i described with the sensory motor adaptation with the decay it's not easy to to measure a um, decay rate you would find that out when you did the simulation stage and maybe think about you know oh well, I might need I might need a longer data run or i might need a larger Perturbation, or I might need to come up with something completely different, like a sinusoidal oh. perturbation, right? So, so that a first stage is very important. And that's what a lot of the book does in the sense that all of the example problems are, you know, we simulate data, we look at what it does, we look at how variations oh. affect it. I think that's an important takeaway. And then the two the two data analytic algorithms that I described, the, the uh, measurement algorithm and the model comparison algorithm, I think that I think that that's just incredibly powerful for a student to be able to step through those four steps and say, Okay, you know, this step, let's you know, what I have to think about you know what the models are, and how could I represent that graphically, and what are the equations. So those algorithms, I think, are important. I think something that I, I describe in detail when I talk about measurement initially, the difference between what I would call a transparent measurement and a complex measurement. So transparent, what I refer to transparent, is a measurement where the units of the measured parameter are the same as the units of the data. So when you're measuring a temperature, when you're measuring the length, these are transparent in the sense that the measurement equation is invisible to you, right? So it's because it's just an identity. And so there's no model equation that most students notice because it's just... That the you know that the average is equal to or whatever, right? So it's just uh, so then you're just getting the Gaussian location. That's you know that's the output of your measurement or something along those lines. But then when you move to something more complex where there is a model comparison, where there is a model equation, and it's more complicated, like the like the exponential decay, right? So now you have <laughs> error data, but your right you have a you have a decay and you have an offset and you have an amplitude. The transition from the transparent to the complex, I think, is very important because students will often think that taking an arithmetic average of their data, that that's the measurement. And that's not the measurement. The measurement is the probability distribution over the parameter that they're interested in measuring. And if they're conflating those two, then when they get to a a more complicated example... Then it's hard to it's hard to make that transition unless it's pointed ah. out uh, clearly. So so I try to I try to make a point of talking about that in the uh, in the measurement chapter, and then of course, you know, the same applies, yeah, just to a more complicated degree
0: in model comparison. That's definitely very interesting. We're getting short on time, but uh, I still have a bit of time to to ask you some questions. I, I like to ask to my guests, which are. What are the main mistakes or difficulties that you notice students have when they start or when they transition to a patient's death? Right. So the transition is difficult
1: sometimes, If they have a background in, in classical statistics mm-hmm. because they've they've devoted so much mental energy to the gymnastics of the of the logic of you know hypothesis testing and classical statistics and so when they're presented with something that's much more straightforward it's jarring and i think uh frankly confusing so they're wondering where the rest of it is where did the the null hypothesis go and why isn't it that you're that you're looking at things upside down and when it's just very straightforward that you can have evidence that both supports and disconfirms hypotheses that's very i think disorienting to someone who's had it hammered into them for however long, that you can only have evidence against hypotheses and never supportive of them. And so it's just things like that where you've been told for so long that you have to do it this way and then realize that they actually you don't have to do it that way and there's a much more logical way to do it then it's nice when they can sort of let that go and i would say see the light but you know let those let those things go but sometimes
0: it's not so easy definitely also why i think it's interesting and your book is Definitely part of that of that effort, and actually, we we so we've we just talked about difficulties students have. But what about you? Do you have in mind a big modeling mistake that you made one day, and and how did you realize it and solve it in the end?
1: Yeah. So most of well, so there are two levels of mistake. Certainly, that I make. i make a lot of mistakes, of course. The basic mistake that I make is just in you know in coding. Uh, there might be a positive where there ought to have been a negative, or And that's incredibly frustrating to track down, but I think everyone has experienced that. And then the other is what I described earlier with not creating a graphical model of the posterior. And then working through the steps of the model comparison algorithm or the or the measurement algorithm i have definitely had multiple cases where i've gone through the whole i've written out all the equations and i've written all the code and started to analyze that and and then i realized this doesn't look right and you know why is the analysis coming out this way and then i realized that that's actually not the analysis that i wanted (laughs) And I have to go through and say, wait a second, slow down and go through what I actually wanted to measure or the models that I actually wanted to compare. And, you know, it can be things like you realize that one of the models in your comparison has a truncated range for one of the parameters. And you hadn't thought about that until, until you ran through the, you know, the simulations is is the best way to catch it. When you run through the simulations, you realize that by varying the way the data looks, the simulated data, that the two models aren't trading off in the way that that they ought to have based on your conception of the models. And then when you look at the details of how you implemented those, you realize, wait a second, I'm I'm comparing the wrong two models here. So I find that that's something that has happened on an occasion or two. And so it's something to look out for. And one of the important, I think, reasons for having a a simulation stage in your um, experimental design process.
0: Definitely helpful and yeah, interesting to, to think about that. Yeah, something, so I don't do a lot of experimental design myself. But the simulation part I can really relate. I usually, when I do, I use simulated data before working on a model, that helps me a lot to, well, understand the model better and make sure that it can recover the true parameters that mm. I use to simulate the data. And yeah, it's really useful, really helpful. And almost all the times I don't do it because I'm lazy. And then Actually, at one point I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, now it's the time to use some simulated data to understand a bit better what's going on. <laughs> yeah, it
1: really gives you a feel for what's happening. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you really have that intuitive feel for you know how things are working. I think that's very important. That's one of the things that I talk about when in that first chapter, actually, when when I give that um, figure. And then I, that's the beginning of a um, data visualization segment of that first chapter, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I talk yep. about getting a feel for your data and plotting it in you know in a lot of different ways to really sort of get a sense for what's happening in there before you do a formal analysis to you know to recognize if there are some. You know, maybe there's a correlation that you hadn't expected and you can you know, you you would see that when you plotted it, or or perhaps you notice that, that your data is discretized in a way that you hadn't expected, and then you can look to see why that might have happened before you start your, your formal analysis to really sort of get a sense for what's happening in there and if there might have been a mistake or you know, your data analysis went wrong somehow. I and mean, your data collection went wrong somehow. And you can you can often see that when you visualize and so getting a feel for both your actual data set, but then also uh, the analysis that you plan to use on it are are both I think
0: very important. Yeah definitely super super valuable. Okay, we have time for uh, one last question before I ask you the the, the two final. So I'm wondering more like from a broader standpoint, what does the future of the behavioral and neural sciences look like to you?
1: Yeah okay. So I'm I'm not I'm not one for big predictions, but, but I do it's think it's something that you're like
0: particularly excited about, you know. I would be very excited if
1: this material caught on. So one of the one of the issues with the with the behavioral and the neurosciences is that and also also medical research, which I think falls within that, is replication issues. There are a lot of studies that don't replicate. And I think that part of that is the data analysis and the the way that in in a classical statistical framework there are multiple statistics for answering a single question, right? So you will often hear if you'll often hear someone trained with looking at, you know, looking through the lens of classical statistics, well, what about a non-parametric test? Or, you know, how about if we look at this, or you know, maybe it's not. Maybe maybe we should do a uh, normality test, and then do you know whatever. And and it, that that process of you know finding something that works can often create an issue with replicability because you're finding ways to to make things work. And and I would like to see that go away. And I think <laughs> that one of the one of the ways to do that is at least to have people sensitized to the fact that the way things are done in a Bayesian framework, there's one measurement that gives you, you know, for that model, right? For that model, there's one way to do the measurement. And then if you change the model, then you're changing the question that you're asking, and then you're doing something else. And so then at least there's the the burden of having to say, well it was done this way because this is the model and the model is this way because of this theory. And if you're not doing that, then you can just, Sort of pick and choose from a grab bag of whatever you like, and without those, without that additional constraint of, of justifying what you've done, I think that that leads to a lot of issues in the field, and I, I wouldn't mind seeing that uh, that go away. And then in general, I think that there's been a trend toward toward innovation, certainly in the within the realm of biomedical research, that there there's been a push for for scientists to collaborate with engineers and and medical doctors. And to have that that collaborative push to get to get those different groups involved together and you know create, well, you know, a range of things. So as I said, I work on assistive technology and that's a passion that I think it's important to to try to, to do something that, that leaves the world a little bit better off, if at all possible. And and so I think that that, that sort of collaboration, in particular with the you know, with the medical school and clinicians. It sensitizes you, even if you're not going to make that, you know, research priority. If you understand those priorities within a clinical environment, what the, you know, what what patients are dealing with, and yeah. that it, it at least can help, I think, give you new ideas for for what you're doing at at a minimum. But you know, I think that
0: it also helps to orient people toward important problems. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely passionate by what you're doing, so that's awesome. Yeah, I think we're getting to the end of our conversation here. You've already been very generous with your time. But before letting you go, as usual, I'm gonna ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. The first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? So
1: I like I
0: like tinkering a lot.
1: <laughs> so I do a lot of a lot of things where you know, as I said, it leads to technology either in the sense of creating an algorithm to detect something and then implementing that in an eye tracking system, you know, that sort of thing. So if I had unlimited time and money, I would I would just enjoy doing doing that in the sense of, you know, just working on in- <laughs> problems that I just think are interest- <laughs> interesting and they have a, a set of of mathematics, you know, the problem draws me in because it has it, there's, you know, there's just some sort of you know, interesting analysis to be done or or maybe the you know, the technology itself is interesting. I personally just really enjoy sensors and, you know, you know, c- creating, uh, you know, electronics uh, with them and so so if it, it, so with unlimited time and money, I just think it would be a lot of fun to to just you know use those uh, skills to make fun things and, and and do that do that kind
0: of work yeah yeah it definitely seems to like topics where you have at least a bit of math to do <laughs> yes well awesome okay so that was uh, really great talking to you todd i learned learned a lot and i um, really happy to see that you're doing that kind of let's say Communication around Bayesian techniques and statistics in your field of behavioral and neural sciences. Again, listeners of the show, you can get a thirty percent discount Dod's book. Just go to Cambridge University Press website, you enter the code BDA BNS twenty two at checkout, and you are all good. The code will be in the show notes, and it's valid until the end of January twenty twenty two. And as usual, I put resources in a link to your website, Todd, in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again for taking the time and being on this show.
1: Thank you again for having me. I really enjoyed, enjoyed chatting with you. It was a lot of fun.
0: This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's LearnBasedance.com Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at BabaBrinkman.com I'm your host, Alex Andora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learn Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing. Let's adjust those expectations Let me show you how to be a good baby Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making Let's get them on a solid foundation